Today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. We're going to talk about, okay, we know what the mission is. We know what our perspective is, that we're debtors. We owe this message to unbelievers. They desperately need it. We know that we're supposed to do it as we go. You don't really plan these strategic evangelisms. You strategize your entire life to live on mission. So today I want to talk about how do we do that? How in the world do we do that? So we're going to be looking at those two verses that Kyle read for us, those two passages. But I want to tell you, today's a topical message. Most of the time here at Grace Life, I'll take one passage and we'll preach all the way through it and we'll talk about all the implications, we'll dig, we'll go treasure hunting. Today, a little bit different, um, same thing, we're getting our, our source from the Word of God, but I'm going to approach it from a topical standpoint. How do we live uh, on mission and make this message, help it to make sense to people? In the early church, the Bible tells us that every single Christian it says this phrase, went about preaching the good news. And that's actually one word in Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in. Everybody went about preaching the good news. It's one word, and that word is euangelizo. And it means this, it literally means to gospelize. People went all over the place, the early church did, in the New Testament, gospelizing everybody. Everybody, themselves, one another, and the, the first century unbelieving world who was enslaved to paganism and some of the Jews who were enslaved to morality and to legalism. These new Christians went about everywhere gospelizing. That means they told people why what Jesus did was actually good news for them. They explained it in a relevant way, in a meaningful way. They heralded it. They published it. They broadcast it everywhere. And in the early church, according to the book of Acts, literally everyone did it. Not just the apostles. The apostles didn't do it for the people. The apostles did it with the people. They didn't have, you know, the, the apostles didn't get a paycheck to go and evangelize for everybody. The whole church did it. The whole community did it. They did it together. They did it with skill. They did it with great passion, with great power, and they saw a lot of fruit. It was very effective. And I think if we're honest, if we look around at the American church today, just the church in the West, we got to say we've lost that. What happened? What happened? What did they have that we don't have. And look, there could be 10 sermons on that. The, the power of the Holy Spirit, for one thing. I'm not saying we don't have it. I'm saying sometimes we forget that we have it, right? Amen? Uh, but there's a lot of other factors that come into play, and I want to talk about one of them today. How did they do it? They, they were not only confident in the power of this message they carried, but they were also competent. They knew that message so well, inside and outside. They knew all the implications they knew all the ramifications so well, they were able to communicate it in a deep and meaningful and relevant way to people who were unbelievers. They had that in the early church. Michael Green, I'm going to put a slide up for this. Michael Green actually wrote a book, and the book is entitled Evangelism in the Early Church. And this is a fascinating quote I found. Check this out. He said, early Christianity's explosive growth was accomplished by means of informal missionaries. You know what he means by that, right? Us. Us. Christians who are, you know, we're trained when we come to church, but we're, we don't have formal training. Not, not all of us have seminary degrees, and not all of us need them. In fact, I would say very few people need a seminary degree to do what God has assigned us to do. But he said, he goes on, it was accomplished by means of an informal missionaries, that is, Christian lay people, not trained preachers and evangelists. They carried on the mission of the church, not through formal preaching, and there was that factor. Definitely, you read the book of Acts, the apostles preached with great power. But he says, not through formal preaching, but informal conversation. Well, what's he mean by that? Well, he explains, in homes, and wine shops, on walks, and around market stalls. They did it naturally, and they did it enthusiastically. Now, let's ask ourselves the questions, do we do that? Do we do it well? Do we do it with, nat with ease, with facility of language? Is, does it come natural for us to speak the good news about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago in a strange culture, a strange time, a strange land? We don't speak their language. We don't follow their customs. We don't understand all the ins and outs of uh, Judaism. But does that event that happened 2,000 years ago have implications for, for us here today in the now? Does it? If it does, do you know them? Would you be able to articulate why the gospel is actually good news right here, right now? Would we be able to explain that right here, right now, why the gospel is good news? Because they did. That's one of the characteristics of the early church and one of the secrets of explosive growth. 
We see that everywhere in all the literature. Evangelism wasn't programmed. It wasn't funded. It was a way of life for the early Christians. They were always on mission. So what was their secret? Well, number one, they had to. They didn't have anybody else to do it for them. They had to do that. They had to do it. They didn't pay anyone. Um, and here's, here's the second thing they had, and this is really the, the crux of what I want to say today. They had something that um, I want to call gospel fluency. Now, don't be discouraged by that $25 word there, okay? Fluency is this. It is the ability to speak a language meaningfully and thoughtfully to people. Here, here's the definition. It's the ability to speak any language, but we're going to say it for the gospel, to speak it thoughtfully and meaningfully into any situation. Let me say that again. The gospel fluency is the ability to speak the message about Jesus Christ coming to rescue and renew all of his creation, starting with us, his most prized creation, the pinnacle of his creation, creatures made in his image. It's, it's speaking that message thoughtfully and meaningfully here and now, today. So it's taking an ancient truth and it's applying it to a really busy culture who doesn't speak the language of the church anymore. They don't even understand it. I mean, listen, 50 years ago, uh, if you want to use the word Christian as an adjective, we lived in a Christian nation, right? People knew most parts of the Bible. They knew the crux, the plot, the storyline of the gospel. They knew who Jesus was, what he came to do, and for the most part, what that meant for them. Those days are gone. Whenever we're engaging people in conversation about the work of Christ, we presuppose way too much. The first thing we resuppose is that they understand words we use, like blessed, atonement, justification. Listen, those words don't compute. In the first century, they knew that. They spoke the language in common, everyday vernacular so that people would understand it. And not only that, I, I want to go much deeper than language they were able to explain to people exactly why the gospel was good news to them. Does that make sense? In other words, okay, so this man we've never heard of came and he, 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 he lived a life, he was undefeated, right? <laughs> he went undefeated if you're viewing his life from sports. He was untouchable. He never did anything wrong in word, thought, or deed. And then he was uh, the religious leaders that hacked them off and so they, they banished him, they, they arrested him, they beat him, and they kicked him out of the city and they hung him on a cross and crucified him and he, he rose from the dead three days later. Okay, I get it. Why in the world is that good news for me? Are we able meaningfully, thoughtfully, and naturally to, to communicate that to people? Because I don't think we are. I say we, I mean the Western church at large. And part of my job as a pastor is to equip you to do that. That's my job. The preachers, apostles, evangelists, bishops, all those words, elders, their role is to equip the church for the work of the ministry. And this is our primary work to do this, to be so fluent in the good news about Jesus that, listen, we, we, we think about life in terms of the good news. That event that happened 2,000 years ago, that's our lens. That's the lens through which we see everything, every problem, every issue, every current event that makes the headlines. When there's a natural disaster, we view it through that event. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I'm going to show you this week and next what I mean. It's a lens through which you view everything. Like David said in the Old Testament, I have put the Lord always before me. We have put the good news about Jesus always before us. We view everything through that. And it's also our filter. We hear through that. When we're talking to people and they're explaining issues they're going through, that's the filter through which we're hearing their problems. And listen, when you learn to think like that and live like that, opportunities you're going to see just sprout out of thin air. The Holy Spirit's going to give you opportunities. But I don't think we think that way. We're so used to viewing that, well, that's kind of manipulative. No, it's, I'm not telling you the secret strategy to, to implement. I'm telling you this is the way we're supposed to live our Christian life. It really is. We're supposed to always have that good news before us. We're listening for opportunities to, we're listening for entry points. You have somebody at work and they're describing uh, a really sad marriage where there is maybe neglect and they feel unloved, and they feel unwanted. You're listening. That's an entry point for the gospel. But how, you go, how did a man who died on a cross 2,000 years ago, what in the world does that have to do with that? That's what I'm saying. Gospel fluency. That's what we need. That's what God has for us. And we can, we can learn to do this. We just have to think very deeply and study the gospel. We really do. And that's my job. That's, honestly, it's no secret. That's why I talk about the message of Jesus every single week. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it's still good news to us. We still need it because there's parts of, there's parts of us 
where we believe, we believe the lies of the world, we believe the lies of Satan, and we need that corresponding gospel promise uh, to, excuse me, to conquer that lie. That's what gospel fluency really means. And you guys know how this works, right? You know what fluency is. It's whenever you are able to become fluent in a language, let's say Spanish. We live in a, uh, in a demographic where a lot of people speak Spanish here, and some people don't speak Spanish. Very good at all. I'm one of them, okay? I know these little snippets. I can say, mi nombre es Tomás. And that's about it. And it may sound like I'm fluent, but I'm not, you know? Uh, I can say, where's the baño? You know, where's the bat? I have certain words that I can say in Spanish that will get me through if I'm living in a Spanish or, or a, a Hispanic culture. But I'm not fluent in that language. I'm not. And I think a lot of Christians kind of live there. They know just little snippets, little catchphrases. And honestly... I have read where if you study a foreign language and you read it through textbooks and you read theses and you do all kinds of online research and you get a grammar book and you learn it inside and out and then you actually go to the place where they supposedly speak it, guess what? You're not going to be able to communicate, man. I'm sorry. Because they all have there's different cultural expressions of every language. And I got to tell you, Christianity is the same. So, and I'm, don't you dare leave here and, and say that Tommy said, Pastor Tommy said the Bible's not enough. No, it is enough. But I would say this, the Bible also tells you to know the culture that you live in. Know the language that people speak in. I'm not talking about profanity, okay? I'm talking about know the ways, know the cultural narratives in the places that you live. What, what, are, what represents people's greatest fear in Deltona or in Delan or in Ormond Beach or in Orange City? What represents their greatest fears? What represents their greatest hopes? Because listen, from culture to culture, that changes a little bit. And when you know that, you're going to be able to explain to them, you know what? I understand. I once thought those things too, but then Jesus entered my story and he rewrote it. And you're going to be able to communicate why the gospel is good news for them. It's not some abstract principle that's floating around 2,000. It's not some ancient truth that has absolutely no relevance to people here and now. And do you know... I'm going to be honest with you guys. The reason that a lot of younger people are not coming to church is a lot of reasons. That's one of them. They come and they hear a message from a man and they think, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know me. And I, and, and I, I guess Christianity doesn't have anything to offer me. Because, listen, a lot of the sermons you would hear, that's, that'd be your takeaway. Well, yeah, I'm sure that is good news, just not for me. That's not good news for me. It doesn't hit me where I live. And I'm not saying you changed the gospel message. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the gospel message about what Jesus did is so magnificent, so beautiful, so compelling, so deep, so powerful, that you can endlessly explore the depths of it and never hit bottom. Gospel fluency. How do you speak the message about what Jesus Christ did to rescue and restore his creation? How do you speak that in thoughtful and meaningful ways it's going to resonate with people, and it's going to prove itself to be relevant. How do you do that? Well, there's, there's three things. And listen, I'm doing something really radical for myself today, and I, I, I think you'll be proud of me, I hope. I'm going to only get through two of these points, and I'm saving the last one for next week. Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. Yeah, amen, amen. I'm only going to tackle two of these, because I can't do all three and, and, and do them justice, okay? So we're just going to get into the first two, but you better, you better come back next week, all of you. I'm telling you right now, you're going to miss out if you don't. Now, today would be good, though. It would be helpful. Gospel fluency begins in you, and it's worked out in community. It begins in you, and it's worked out through community. When you are studying a language, and you want to be proficient in that language, you want to be fluent in that language, what's the first thing that you do? You study it, right? You study it. You expose yourself to that language. Uh, and I know you can get really radical and say, well, I'm just going to move to Mexico if I'm going to learn how to speak Mexican. I'm not talking about that yet. Talking about the first thing you do is you gather resources and you study that language so that you know what inside and you know what outside. And that's what really the first call to do in the gospel is. And I want you to hear, this is the Apostle Paul. He wrote 13 letters that we find in the New Testament and he planted a whole bunch of churches. And I want to tell you this. This may help you if you've never heard this before. Every single epistle that the Apostle Paul and all the other apostles wrote, Peter, John, all of them, Every single epistle, every letter he wrote to the church begins with all the implications and depths and beauties and glories of the gospel. They all start there. And most of these letters, if you read them, probably the first half, it's usually proportionate, about the first half he is telling us what 
God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then the second half of those epistles, do you know what he talks about? The implications for that. What does that mean for us? How does that change the way we think? How does that change the way we encounter hardships? How does that change the way that we suffer? How does that change the way we live? How does that change the way um, that we're sinned against, our perspective on that? Paul always does that. And I want to I drop down in Ephesians chapter 1 here. Kyle read it. And I want to read his prayer for the Ephesians. They're already Christians. They're already an established church, and they've been in existence for a while. And still, this is Paul's prayer for them. And it's Jesus' prayer for us, and it's what the Holy Spirit is seeking to accomplish in us. Because remember, we're talking about living on mission. How do we live on a mission for Jesus and see great fruit in our evangelistic efforts? How do we do that? This is going to be key right here. If we can become gospel fluent in our own hearts, amongst ourselves as a community, listen, we're going to speak the saving truth about Jesus naturally and meaningfully out there if we do it naturally and meaningfully in here, right? If we can apply the gospel to our own hearts, apply it to the hearts of one another, we'll be able to do it uh, in the outside world too. This is what Paul prays. Check this out. He says, I do not, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now that would be an incredible thing, would it not? Here's an apostle and he's praying for this church. Well, what are you praying, Paul? I mean, I can think of a lot of things that as a pastor could occupy all of my time of prayer for this church. And do you know, my, my prayers for this church, I really want to model after Jesus' prayers and the apostles' prayers. And this is what Paul prays. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, that is Jesus. Verse 18, having the eyes of your, under, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's a strange phrase. The eyes of your heart, yeah, so you can see things from your heart. You can see things spiritually. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now those are three things that the Apostle Paul is praying for, so that we may know this hope, we may know the riches of an inheritance, of our inheritance in Jesus, and we may know the immeasurable greatness of His power. Do you know that all three of those things, don't you want those things, by the way? Anybody in here want that? I do. Sign me up. I want them. I want all of them. I want all three of those things, and I want them to just flow out of my life. And that's what Paul prays. And do you know how those things are attained? You know what he's actually saying there? So that you can know together with all the rest of the saints what is the depth, the height, the length, the breadth of the love that Jesus has for you. That's what he's praying. He's talking about knowing the gospel, knowing what the gospel means for us here and now today. That's what Paul wanted that church to know so that they would speak it to one another and they would be effective witnesses out in the world. And that's a really uh, incredible and, and important point to make because here's, here's the problem. If we are not willing to apply the gospel to our own heart, I mean, if we're not in the habit and the practice of doing that, if you're studying language, okay, and you're not trying to speak it to yourself, I remember trying to do that when I took Spanish, and I just gave up. And so many people do that in the church too. If you're not, if you're not willing to put in the hard work, you know, to explore the riches of the gospel and apply them to our own hearts, um, you're not going to do it well in community, and you're not going to do it well in the world that we live in. This is what Jeff Bannerstelt said. You can put that uh, up. Again, this quote, because this is what people think. This is a problem I think I've seen in the church. I've been a Christian for the last 21 years, and I've been in pastoral ministry for the last 15, and I've been in six different churches, and this is an observation, okay? I'm only 42. I haven't been around as long as some of you. I don't have the wisdom and experience, but I got a little bit. And this is one of the problems I have seen in the church. People think that the gospel is just the entry point into Christianity. That's it. It's the message that... that justifies you and that uh, makes you become a child of God. It's just the ABCs. It's the basic building blocks. And then after that, we know, we all know that you graduate on to bigger and grander and more important and deeper things so that you can really mature and grow up and get strong and be knowledgeable and be able to be an effective Christian. That's what most people think in America in the church. And I've got to tell you, they're dead wrong. They're dead wrong right here. What is Paul praying? He is praying that we would know how deep God's love for us is in Jesus. Did you know that 
I'm going to read the quote in a minute. Did you know that in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter is talking about the message about Christ. He's talking about the gospel. And there's this little phrase, I think it's in verse 12 or verse 13, and he says, and you, in the gospel, the promises of God were preached to you. And then he says this, things which angels long to look into. You guys ever read that in the New Testament? Just like a little phrase just tucked away. And I've been, I've been studying that and reading that. And I thought, man, that's interesting. The Bible says that angels, I even looked at what the word means. It, it means literally longing to look into. It would be you're on the edge of your seat. You're stooping down and you're looking longingly. You want to know more about this. Now, angels aren't dummies, are they? They're incredible beings that God created. And the Bible says they are peering into this event that Christ accomplished by his life, death, resurrection that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and they're longing to look into it and know it more. And I don't find that Christians have that attitude. We're no angels. I mean, that could have several applications. We're no angel. Um, angels aren't dummies, and yet they're looking at the bottomlessness of the gospel. Are you? Are you peering in, longing to know more? I want to know how what Jesus did for me, all the ways that it applies to my life, all the ways that it secures me and strengthens me and gives me a new identity and builds this resilience in me that I'm able to endure hardship. I'm able to be gossiped about, slandered about. I'm able to feel unloved by the world, even maybe by my own spouse, because I know the truth about how I relate to Jesus Christ because of that event. If angels long to peer into it, why are we so easily uh, satisfied with just the basic knowledge we have as a new Christian. Check this out. Jeff Vanderstelt, he wrote a book called Gospel Fluency, and he says this, those who are growing in gospel fluency are experiencing ongoing transformation themselves. They are experiencing ongoing change as the truths of the gospel are brought to bear on their thoughts, beliefs, emotions, and actions, transforming them into greater Christ-likeness every day. Now, when that happens... When that happens, what's that going to mean? What are the implications for the mission that Jesus left us here to accomplish? Man, we're going, to be, we're going to have our armor strapped on, and we're going to be ready to be his ambassadors, right? Because we're practiced up. We're studied up. Our hearts are secure. We're ready. We're ready to uh, rappel down into the battle and, and get busy for Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. So... Christi the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's not just the entry point. It's, it's not just the diving board uh, onto which we dive into the swimming pool. It is the swimming pool. And we can swim around exploring the depths and the beauties of what Jesus has done for us for all eternity and not fully be satisfied. In fact, we are. We are. You know, Jesus, the Bible says in heaven, he is seated on a throne, and John had this appearance of him in Revelation, and he saw him, and he says he is seated on the throne, and he looks the appearance of a lamb having been slaughtered yet standing. I mean, even in heaven, we're still rehearsing all the beauties and power of the gospel. And so why not get started here and not be satisfied with, uh, you know, one guy, I'll give you an anecdote here, okay? I preached my heart out one day here. It was one of the first years, and you wouldn't even know who this is. They've never been back, and you'll know why when I tell you this. They came, and he was listening with rapt attention. I thought, man, this guy's digging what I'm saying, you know? Had children that he put in, in, in the back, and they loved it, had a great experience. His wife even filled out a comment card before her husband and I talked. said, I love it. We'll be back. Thank you. Um, as soon as I was finished, and I was just preaching the gospel that day, just a straight-up gospel message, maybe even from the Old Testament, and this guy, like, accosted me in the back. I mean, he, like, right thought, whoa, has he got a weapon? What's going on here? And he cornered me. He said, hey, i got to talk to you. And I said, well, all right, let's talk now. And he said, uh, I appreciated what you said. And I said, well, well, thank you. And I thought, great, man. And he said, I'd really like to have lunch with you. And I'm like, awesome. Holy Spirit's brought conviction on this guy. He's a hot prospect. He wants to get saved. He wants to join the church. He wants to tithe. I don't know. You know, possibilities are endless. And this guy said, uh, he said, but I'll tell you this. He said, what this church needs is the deep things of God. And I said, I mean, it was a buzzkill. And I said, what? as a pastor, you try to keep your composure. You know, what you want to say is, what? <laughs> Wasn't that deep enough? I mean, man, I dug deep. I had a shovel up there. And he said, no, they really need the deep things of God. And he waxed eloquent for about 15 minutes until I'd had all I could stand. And he said, you know, you've got to know the name of Satan in ancient Hebrew. It's this and the, all the names of Jehovah. And, you know, the ancient, uh, this, uh, this dig, this archaeological discovery they just made that means this. And I'm like, whoa, dude, hang, hang on a minute, man. I said, 
I don't know any of that stuff. I mean, I went to seminary and I know basic Hebrew and Greek, but I, you know, I don't know any of that stuff and I don't believe I have any business up there trying to wax eloquent and impress people. And I said, you know, the Bible says the thing that's going to grow people up, the deep things of God is what I just preached. Now, I know I'm not the best preacher in the world, but he wasn't having it. I mean, back and forth we went for 10 minutes and I said, look, man, I appreciate this is your first time to visit our church. Um, there's other sermons that I've preached. Maybe you can get some depth from, I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I know what God's mission is for this church. I've got his vision for it and and uh thank you and you know i, I don't really want to have lunch with you this is the direction the conversation is going to go and huffed and puffed and off he went but listen here here's what i want to say and, and it came out he's not a, he's not a consistent member of any church uh he's been church hopping for probably five years and his wife was miserable doing that so here's what i want to ask if the deep things of god that he's talking about produces that no thank you i think i'm good with my deep things of god I hope this makes sense to you. Is this making sense? If, that, if, if studying those deep things of God makes me arrogant <laughs> and makes me abrasive uh, and self-centered and judgmental and overly crit- hypercritical, I don't want it. And the Bible says that the gospel softens our heart, strengthens our heart, deepens and sweetens our love for God, for one another, for unbelievers. And so this whole deep things, listen, that's not what the Bible teaches. I know there's other subjects in Christianity, and when we get to them in the Bible, we explain them and we teach them and we apply them to our hearts. But listen, all of the Bible is about one person and it's about one event. It's about Jesus Christ who came back to a fallen, sin-riddled planet at great cost and sacrifice to himself to rescue something valuable to him, a treasure, and it's us. That's what the Bible is about. That's what the gospel is about. And that's what God has called us to know deeply, um, to apply meaningfully, and to be able to explain clearly to other people. That's what gospel fluency is. The same power that makes us Christians matures us as Christians. That's what Paul says here and in a lot of other places. In fact, when Paul wrote another letter, 1 Corinthians, he, he said this. This is chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what Paul is saying is, this is the message that is of first importance. This is the most important thing in all the universe and in all the Bible, is the message about what Jesus came to do. And Paul says, I delivered that to you. And he says, I preached it, you received it, and you're standing in it. What's that mean? That, that's a metaphor. It, mean, it, it's, it means when you're standing in something, it's, it's, you're strong. You're able to withstand anything. Paul says, the gospel that I preached to you, that you believed, that you received, is what you're standing in. And he says, that same gospel, there's a past tense that what you were saved by what Christ did, right? You're justified. The penalty was paid in full for your sins and you're declared blameless. No more guilt. There's a future aspect of your salvation. One day... You, the presence of sin is going to be 100% removed from you and you'll be glorified. But right now, you and I, are in the, we're in the now. And this is sanctification. And that is where the power of sin is losing its grip on you slowly and slowly. In fact, it's been broken, the Bible says. And this is what Paul is talking about. He said, this gospel, you stand in it, you believe it, and you're being saved through it. That means God's saving act, it was accomplished, we were justified, but we're also being sanctified, we're being set apart. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And the way that happens, the power that makes that happen in your life and in my life is reminding ourselves what Jesus did on our behalf. We're going back to that, back to that, back to that. That's like the laser tag. That's the base that you go back to and you get re-energized. That's it. That's the deep thing of God that we need, okay? There's no other deep thing of God outside of that that holds any power. So don't be deceived by these deep things that people tell you have all this power. They don't, unless it's... Unless it's uh, a fresh way to understand this. That's the only power uh, that the Bible holds out is what Jesus did for us. So, and let me, um, yeah, let me give you another, let me give you another point here. Point number two. I want to move on here. Point number two. Not only is this the gospel in us, this is also, um, it's worked out in community. It's worked out in community. If we're going to become gospel fluent, we study this. We're applying it to our own heart. Um, 
And we're also going to have to work it out in community. And look at Ephesians 4. This is really, really an awesome passage. Chapter 4, and we'll look at verse... Let's start back up in 14. And Paul is, is telling this church that we are not to be living as children, immature, so that, we not, so that we be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. And then verse 15, and he says, but rather, rather than being childish, rather than being unsettled, rather than being tossed to and fro all over the place, do you know anybody like that? Have you, have you yourself felt that to be true about you? As a Christian, you feel unsettled, you feel like your commitment to Christ is languishing and withering. You feel like you're all over the place. You feel like if the strongest wind came along, over you would go. And you also feel these temptations. You're powerless against them. You need help. You just don't know where to get the help. Listen to what Paul says. Rather than speaking with cunning and deceitfulness and being tossed all over the place, he says this. Rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here's Paul's antidote for immaturity and for succumbing to temptation. He says, speak the truth to one another in love. That's it. That's the antidote. That sounds so simple that most people don't believe it or even practice it. Do you know what Paul's saying? He's saying, you speak the truth in love to yourself, okay? You study it. That's his prayer, Ephesians 1. Now, what's the outflow of that? The outflow is this. If you want to become gospel fluent, not only do you study the language, you've got to practice the language. You've got to speak it out loud. And the Bible teaches that this, this church, this is our community, that all of us need to become gospel fluent with one another. That means we are speaking the truth in love to one another. What's that mean? That means that we are helping one another apply the finished work of God through Christ to our own hearts. And we're doing it with love. It's truth and it's love. If you just take one of those, it won't work. If you have truth without love, what's that? That's your rigid, your very angular, hard-nosed. You come across as, as oppressive, tyrannical. If you have love but no truth, what are you? Well, you're not going to help anybody. You're going to love people right into hell, right? They need both. They need for you to speak the truth, the truth meaning the gospel truth, to them in love. And I've got an unflattering illustration I want to use, okay? A young lady, man, I hope I don't cry. A young lady came to my office the other day, and I have not seen her in 10 years. 10 years. Um, and I didn't date her or anything like that. I don't get the wrong idea. She was one of the college students. I was a college director at another church, a bigger church, years ago. Before I went to seminary, and I'll be honest with you, before I really rediscovered for myself the power, um, the present power of the gospel message. This was before any of that. I was a college pastor, and man, I bet it was hard for me to be your pastor if you were in my class. Um, because I was so driven by my performance. As a pastor, I was. I wanted everybody to think this church could not continue to function without that young man being the director of those college students. I mean, I wanted that. It was, I, my identity was in my performance as a pastor. How, how well the students liked my sermons. Um, how many of them would come to church and would be a part of the regular gathering in our corporate worship service so that the senior pastor would say, good job, son. I wanted all of that. I wanted affirmation. I wanted respect. I wanted attention. I wanted a pat on the back. Well, some of these college students that I would teach, they would go off to school. Some of them wouldn't stay local. They would go. And some of them would sit under professors that would challenge their Christianity, would challenge their Christian faith, would call into question the veracity of the Bible. Oh, come on, shake the hayseed out of your hair. You can't really believe that God wrote all that, can you? And that there's no errors in it? Oh, you can't believe that God actually created the world? Come on, evolution says this. And dinosaur, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And so these college students, some of them would come back, and man, they would be in a really hard place. And i got to be honest with you, I didn't have much sympathy for it. I didn't. I, here, was my, here was my MO, my mode of operation. Get over it. You know what the Bible says. You know it's God's Word. You know what Jesus did for you. So just stop it. Stop with the doubts. 
That was my MO. Well, this one particular girl came, and she was very sharp, intellectually sharp, one of the sharpest knives in the drawer. She came home, and she was really adamant. She had doubts. She had what she thought to be legitimate doubts about the Bible and about the claims of Christianity and about if we could really trust this. And how do we know that the gospel accounts are eyewitness accounts and that they're accurate? She had questions, and I want to be really honest with you. I didn't have answers. I was intimidated by her, and I was embarrassed by her because she couldn't get answers from me. So guess what? She, went, she started going around, talking to other leaders, talking to other college students. So then, now, now I'm just being honest with you, when the gospel hasn't gripped your heart, you know what you do? You lash out. Keep in mind, what kind of community are we supposed to be? Speaking the truth in love. What a beautiful place that would be, right? We love one another. We're patient. We're forbearing. We give people space. We let them doubt. We make this a safe place where you can express your doubts to somebody who can help you, right? That wasn't, that wasn't my ministry at all. It, it wasn't anywhere near that. So she went around asking other questions. You know what I did? I called her in. I said, we need to have a meeting. Arkansan term, meeting. You and me, got to meet. I want to talk, uh, and I didn't talk to her, I talked at her. And I'm sure I raised my voice. I don't remember everything that was said, I know this, it crushed her. I said, this is rebellion, it's what this is. And you don't have any right asking these kinds of questions. You've been at this church since you were a kid. You've heard all kinds of preaching, you've heard me teach. <laughs> what kind of arrogance is that? You've already heard me explain all this. And man, I raked her across the coals. It was like, it was like she would have been a pet and I beat her with a rolled up newspaper. I did. And you know what? She left the church for a long time. And, and in her mind, I represented the care of, of God to her. She thought God was uncaring. He's distant. Christians really don't have solid answers to legitimate questions that people like me are asking, and there's no place for me here. Ten years went by, and God's done a work in my heart. I'm still changing by the grace of God. And she came in, and the first thing, man, I just, I just felt a wave of... It was like PTSD almost. You know, and I had to suppress at first a little bit of anger because you know what? She started telling people about that meeting and saying, he yelled at me, he raised his voice, which was true. I'm sure that I did. I'm, because when you're angry and you get passionate, it comes out, it bubbles out of you. Um, so when I saw her, I had to check my heart and I said, hey, look, can I talk to you for a minute? I, I really need to ask your forgiveness. Um, what I did was wrong and it didn't help you at all. And it sent you on a really hard journey that you've been on. And she has been on a hard journey. And, and she asked me this question. She said, of course I forgive you and thank you. That, that means the world to me. She said, can I ask you a question? What changed? What changed? Because I said, I want to go back to that Tommy 10 years ago. And I want to grab him by the shoulders and say, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know how far what you're doing is from this? Speaking the truth and love. You didn't have love. You weren't tender. You weren't listening. You were just asserting yourself. And she said, what, what changed? And you know, when, you, when somebody asks you a good question, you really got to dig deep. And I said, you know what changed? I think, I think I rediscovered the gospel. I think God helped me rediscover the joys of what Jesus did for me. And you know what? I don't, my identity doesn't come from people patting me on the back as a pastor and saying, what a good job you're doing. All these young Christians, college students are going out there and they're getting berated by these professors and they come back and they're solid. Good job, Tommy. You're a great pastor. They even tithe. These college students even tithe. Man, what an amazing pastor we have on our staff. I don't, now, of course, on my hard days, I still need that, right? <laughs> you know that when I ask you, how was the sermon? <laughs> but you know what? My identity is not based in my performance. The gospel says that I don't achieve God's acceptance. I receive it. It's not something that I perform and get. It's something that's done for me already. Jesus has already given me a new identity, and it's one I had nothing to do with. He says, you're a son. You're not an orphan anymore. You don't need the affection and the attention of everybody else. I'm the one whose opinion matters the most, and I say, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There's nothing that you could ever do to make me love you less, and there's nothing you're ever going to do to make me love you any more than I already do. And I want to tell you something. When that penny drops in your heart, it will change the way you treat people that don't believe the same way you do, or that challenge your authority, or that give you a hard time, or that sin against you, or leave you, or abuse you, or abandon you. It will change the way you treat them. And I'm telling you right now, when the world sees a church that does this, it's going to radically change our witness radically because right now the church i don't think is a safe place for a lot of people to come and ask questions why we're we're just as deeply insecure as they are sometimes that's why we don't want we're embarrassed i don't know the answers 
Now I can say with a loving heart, you know what? Those are good questions. Let's explore them together because God has answers. I believe this is the great anvil, as one Puritan called it. This is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. It can take whatever accusations you can level at it, right? But I didn't, I didn't have the tenderness to say that back then. I didn't. God had to rediscover the gospel in my heart for me. So speaking the truth and love, that's speaking the gospel to one another. That's what God will do. And that's how it should shape our heart and shape our response to people. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this. Man, it really doesn't matter how many points I give you today. I'm going to preach the same amount of time. I, I think I'm learning that about myself. You could give me one sheet of paper, it ain't going to matter. You know, I'm just telling you, pray for me, guys, okay? Um, I know you're wondering, what does he mean, though, applying the gospel? What does he even mean? We're going to get into that a lot more next week, but I want to give you one illustration, okay? Why is the gospel good news for you as a Christian when this happens? Fill in the blank, whatever it is. What, what is it? Cancer. Why is the gospel good news for you when they did the biopsy and it came back? What is it when it's cancerous? Is it um, malignant, not malign? Malign is good, malignant bad, right? When you have to have the double mastectomy surgery, why is the gospel good news for you then? What I'm saying is when you are fluent in the gospel, you'll be able to tell people why it's good news. And one of the only reasons you'll be able to is because you've had to apply that same dynamic of the gospel to your own heart. See, if we're not applying it to ourselves, we're not going to be applying it to people in here, and we're going to be clueless how to apply it to people out there. So here's one example. You guys have seen this in the headlines. I'm a fool as a pastor if I don't um, take something that's going on historically in this cultural moment and use it as a teaching opportunity. I want to do that. Dr. Larry Nassar. Have you guys seen him on TV? He was a, he was a doctor for the USA Olympics uh, gymnastics team. He was the go-to doctor. If you were a young female athlete and you were injured in gymnastics, he was the guy that would get you back on your feet, get you back into competition, help you win all kinds of gold medals. Well, it turns out that for a 20-year period, he was sexually abusing, I would say molesting, young female athletes. Now, he would see swimmers, volleyball players, figure skaters, but his primary clientele was gymnastics uh, girls because they started really young. It's really sick, disgusting, and perverting. It really is. But they, some as early as young as six years old, a 20-year span, he abused them. This is the really crazy part. He did it in his office while their parents were in the room. He was so deceptive. As a doctor, he used his authority and his PhD behind his name to abuse those girls. I'm sure you've seen it. You can read all kinds of stuff about it. Well, check this out. Because one lady was really brave, she was the first to register uh, a complaint. At first, she was ignored. Uh, she was um, challenged to be quiet about it. It was swept under the rug. She was relentless. And later, 20 years later, they finally acknowledged, you know what? There's other reports. We got to look into this. 163 women paraded in front of him in the courtroom last week and shared their, it's called a victim impact testimony. They were able to look their abuser in the eyes and tell him exactly what his abuse had done to them. 163 women. Can you imagine being in that courtroom? The energy, the electricity in there. Well, I don't know if you've been reading some of the Christian news outlets, but there was one lady, I want to get her name right. Her name was Rachel Denhollander. I don't know how to pronounce that last name. Rachel Denhollander. Can you put that slide up for us? Is it up there? Okay. So there is Dr. Nassar on the left, and there is Rachel on the right. She was the first victim th that filed a police report, and it was fitting that she was the very last 163rd um, survivor or victim to confront her abuser. And she did one of the most amazing jobs I think I've ever heard of anybody articulating the gospel to somebody who had injured them. And I just want to read a quote from it, okay? It's a little bit lengthy. I want to read. This is what she said. She said, Larry Nassar, you have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices over and over again to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others, and the opposite of what you had done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it cost me. Larry, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself so sacrificially, 
loving, that he gave up everything to pay the penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible, you care. You know forgiveness does not come from doing good things. As if good deeds can erase what you have done, it comes through repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its utter depravity and horror. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And then she said this, and that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. That's pretty astonishing, don't you think? For a girl who from a young teenager was in the room for him, with him multiple times being abused, and I don't want to get too graphic about it, it was horrific, horrific. But I want to ask you a question. I want you to think deeply with me. We've got to think deeply as Christians. There's a whole world out there that has no idea how to apply something that Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago to themselves today, here and now, in 2018. What she shared with him was good news, right? I mean, and she spoke in his language. He's a condemned criminal. He pled guilty on 10 counts. I don't know how that works. 163 is what it ought to be. He pled guilty to 10. He was sentenced to 175 years. He's going to die in prison, Okay. She said, you're a criminal, you've been deceptive, you've been depraved, but listen, there's forgiveness for you because there's a substitute. Somebody came and took the penalty that you deserve and is offering you their righteousness. That's good news for him. I want to ask you a question. I want you to be honest with yourself. I'm going to make a prediction. That lady, she's a Christian, and she goes to a church. After all this is settled, and she's married, and she's got children, she's going to go back to that church, and I'm going to make a prediction, okay? She's going to have a really hard time. Because what that man did to her is going to impact her the rest of her life. And so here's my question for you. How's the gospel good news for her? Do you believe that it is? Or do you believe that, well, well, no, it's just for, for, for Dr. Larry. He can become a Christian by believing the good news. Yeah, I know. She did a marvelous job of applying that. Um, how would you apply the gospel to her? Because I can tell you this, she's going to wrestle with bitterness the rest of her life, probably. She's going to resent men. She's going to feel rejected, used, abused. She's probably going to struggle with intimacy in her marriage. I could go on and on all day. And, and what I want to ask you, and I want, I want us to ask ourselves, would you be able to take the good news about what Jesus did and who he is for her and apply it to her and say, look, the gospel is still good news for you too. Because that's what gospel fluency is. And I know you want me to answer that for you, don't you? You want me to tell you how the gospel's good news for her. Well, here's some thoughts to consider, okay? What's her identity? Her identity, she's going to be tempted. And I've got to close. I've got to be quick. She's going to be tempted to be the victim the rest of her life. I'm the victim. I was abused. I was unloved. I was rejected. I was sinned against. I was manipulated. My soul was destroyed. What does the gospel say to her and to us? To any form of abuse, any... Everybody in here has been a victim of some kind of abuse, whether it was emotional, verbal, you've been hurt, you felt rejected, you were bullied, all of us have. How does the gospel speak into that situation and say there's good news for you? Because listen, you don't have to live the rest of your life with your identity being a victim. You don't. And you don't have to live the rest of your life mistrusting people that are in positions of authority. Why? Because listen, this is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for you. He come and he changed your identity. He said, look, you're not going to be the victim anymore. Okay? You're going to belong to me. And I'm going to love you the way a man should love you. I'm not going to abuse you. I'm not going to exploit you. I'm not going to be cruel to you or harsh to you. Jesus, the Bible says that God is our father, right? And that God is our shepherd. And that God is tender with us. And that he, the Bible says that God in Hebrews... He understands our weaknesses and our frailties, right? He understands us in a way we don't even understand ourselves. She's going to wrestle with shame the rest of her life. What does the Bible say? Jesus came and he traded places with you. You don't have to be ashamed for the rest of your life because of what happened, because I'm going to take that shame. I'm going to put it on my back and I'm going to take it to the cross with me. That's, one, that's just one of the ways that we can study together how gospel fluency will make us more effective. Because listen, guys, I'm telling you, a lot of people come to the church and they're hurting. They're broken. They've been abused. They're, they're, they're believing lies that the world is telling them about their identity being this gender or that gender or this or that. And sometimes Christians, we just look at them with blank faces and say, you just need to repent. 
which I'm not neglecting that. There needs to be repentance at a deep level. But listen, are we able to articulate the gospel in such a way that at least people would hope that it could be true because it would be good news for them? Because they're looking for satisfaction and joy and fulfillment out of this identity. We could be able to say, look, what you're doing is you're chasing a pipe dream. You're never going to get satisfaction or joy out of that path. In fact, it's going to destroy you. Instead, corresponding, God offers you this promise because of what Jesus did. That's what, that's what gospel fluency is. That's what it looks like. That's what it does. Now, those are the first two points, okay? Um, and we're going to stop there. And I went longer than I wanted to. Sorry. Next, next week, we're going to talk about this. How do we take it from in here around this and take it to out there? That's where we're really going to get into the meat of how do you show that this is actually good news for this situation, for that situation. I hope this is making sense. And look, next week, I'm going to recommend some resources for you. I don't do this a whole lot. But there's some, some th- if you want to study more on this, a lot of you like to read. You're always asking for resources. I want to put some resources into your hands that will help you. And they're not too academic where you couldn't read them and understand them. They use layperson's language so that we'll all, we can study this together. And I also want to do this, closing with this. Um, I want to tell you that this is one of the reasons that I believe the counseling ministry, beholding and becoming, is so important. It is such an important part of us being effective witnesses of Christ because sometimes people like um, the lady in the courtroom, I forgot her first name, she may need more specialized and professional help. And look, a lot of Christians that don't really, they don't know how to apply the gospel, it's okay to bring them to somebody who can. And that's what we try to do at our counseling organization. We are constantly thinking and praying and exploring ways to show them that there is good news even in the midst of this. Whatever it is, sickness, abandonment, cancer, financial collapse, whatever it is, there's good news. And that's why I really hope that you guys pray about supporting this ministry. And look, if you know somebody that would benefit from it, Melissa is always at the B&B cart in the, uh, in the lobby as you walk out and you can get some more information there, okay? Let's pray.